American Cinematographer Podcast takes you behind the scenes with the people behind the camera, from the classics to the cutting edge. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian Marks, and in this episode, I'm joined by Michael Pessa, ASC, to take a deep dive into the work of cinematographer Derek Van Lint, CSC, on the 1979 film Alien. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Alien is, you know, it's this great example about how the look and feel something can elevate the text so much so that it becomes art. But first, the April 2023 issue of American Cinematographer magazine is out now with a cover story on the team effort behind HBO Max's television adaptation of the hit video game, The Last of Us. Also in this issue, Checo Varese, ASC, and Jeff Cutter dramatize the conflicts within a fictional musical supergroup for the 10-part Amazon series, Daisy Jones and the Six. ASC member Robert Legato offers his thoughts on how virtual production techniques used in cinema are often field-tested in the broadcast realm and a profile of visual effects cinematographer Sam Nicholson ASC, honored with the 2023 Curtis Clark ASC Technical Achievement Award. In Clubhouse news, the ASC welcomes new society member Christian Sprenger ASC, whose credits include FX's Atlanta, HBO Max's Station Eleven, and Amazon's Guava Island. ASC members Ernest Dickerson, Kira Kelly, Tommy Maddox Upshaw, Donald A. Morgan, and John Simmons recently joined the president of Local 600 and other industry professionals in Inglewood, California at an open industry gathering organized by LA-based cinematographer Samuel Hicks with the goal of creating more opportunities for aspiring black camera professionals. You can find a full write-up on the event in this month's AC. This episode of the American Cinematographer podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass. Designed for advanced students seeking to build their skills, this five-day seminar is taught by top directors of photography in person at the ASC Clubhouse in Hollywood and nearby facilities with all necessary equipment provided. Sessions include live demonstrations of lighting and camera techniques, as well as instruction in current workflow practices. Enrollment in each ASC Masterclass session is limited to 30 students. Upcoming sessions in 2023 will take place June 22nd to the 25th with a special focus on virtual production, August 7th to the 11th, September 18th to the 22nd, an online edition October 14th and 15th, and November 13th to the 17th with a special focus on shooting film. Complete details and registration can be found at theasc.com. And now it's time for the interview. In this episode, I'm pleased to welcome cinematographer and ASC member Michael Pessa to talk about the remarkable, genre-defying, and defining cinematography of Ridley Scott's 1979 film Alien, shot by Derek Van Lint, CSC. Michael is known for his award-winning work in both scripted and documentary filmmaking, and for numerous music videos and commercials. He's also on the faculty at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles and serves on the National Film Preservation Board at the Library of Congress. Together, we'll touch on the film's origins. Van Lin's collaboration with Scott, which predates the film, will pick out some of our favorite scenes and ponder what might have been as Alien is one of only two major feature credits to the cinematographer's name. The other being 1981's Dragon Slayer, directed by Matthew Robbins. Van Lint passed away in 2010. 
Alien is one of those films that's been endlessly written about because there are seemingly endless things to discover. And while that makes for a little too much movie to completely unpack in one sitting, it's also fun to see how far down the rabbit hole we can go. So we're here to talk about the filming and aesthetics of Alien. And we have two things we want to talk about. The first is, is how Alien subverted the conventional look of the science fiction film and became the first postmodernist science fiction movie. And then it's going to be also an appreciation of, of Derek Van Lint, the DP who filmed Alien only to retire from shooting features soon afterwards. So let's just start at the beginning. You called Alien the first postmodernist science fiction movie. What would you consider to be like a modernist science fiction film from the era that we're talking about? If you'll humor me, one of the best sort of doorways to understanding Alien is to go back 20, 30, 40 years. You know, I've said it more than once. Every time you make a film in a genre, you're having a conversation with the films in that genre that have preceded it. And I think Alien is such a wonderful case study of how a film that's ostensibly a genre film is having this like really, really complex conversation with the movies in its genre that preceded it. And if you go way back, the early science fiction films, like say, for example, Flash Gordon or um, Forbidden Planet, they were kind of pulpy films. Um, they were often B-movies. They were not high concept films. There were science fiction films um, like um, Metropolis, right? That had very high artistic um, aspirations, right? But a lot of these were sort of comic book films or uh, B-movies. And that really got turned on its ear when Stanley Kubrick made 2001. A lot of the sort of gadgets and gizmos that felt like they were ordered from the back of a, of a comic book were rendered in this beautiful modernist aesthetic. And if you look at 2001, right, it, it owes as much to um, Le Cabossier or to uh, Johnson or any of the great modernist architects as it does to the science fiction films that preceded it. And what 2001 did that was really so interesting that I think so many people responded to is it created an optimistic view of the future, even though it's a very dark film, because the visual language of the film is so organized. And if you look at the relatively deep depth of field, the lack of film grain, the gliding camera movements, the controlled color palette, even as the film ends with its possibly complex or even dark ending, you know, you're in a perfectly organized white bedroom. And, uh, you know, almost all color has been removed from the frame. And that became the look and the kind of face of science fiction for quite a bit of time afterwards. Few films change the um, visual language of a genre as quickly and as dramatically as 2001 did. And so instead of these really sort of campy spaceships flying around, you really had something that looked like it belonged to the Museum of Modern Art. Right, you had a ballet. Absolutely. Then the music was a part of it, right? Instead of using a sort of amped up musical score, Kubrick was borrowing from the best of modernist and classical music, Strauss, Ligeti. And that became part of the expectation of what a science fiction film might be. You look at uh, THX 1138 and some of the films afterwards, and 
people were expecting a sort of modernist head trip when they saw a science fiction movie, which was a, uh, I think in some ways, a, a new expectation. And part of that was this very, very organized visual language that Kubrick and his cinematographer created. I guess without trying to deconstruct that answer, I want to ask you, isn't 2001, though, in taking Flash Gordon or like it, the terror from beyond space or something like that, you know, Forbidden Planet and making a serious science fiction film, bridging the gap between low and and high art, isn't that in and of itself a postmodern technique? Absolutely. And that was one of reasons why uh, 2001 was transgressive. There were some very high-minded science fiction films that preceded it, but it took what was, I think, to many people, sort of B-movie genre, and it made it into something that would have been as happy playing on a museum wall as an art installation as in a theater or in a multiplex. And that unto itself was a very, very revolutionary idea. And I think it's one of the reasons why people still react to the film, and it's, it's so meaningful to so many people. Right, so this kicked off a trend in science fiction films. Are you talking about like a philosophical trend or more of like an aesthetic? It's both. You know, the two come hand in hand. And that's that's one of the fun things about cinematography is, you know, the visuals are in, informed by the themes and vice versa. So after 2001, you had films like THX 1138, which I mentioned, that weren't plot driven, right? They were thematically driven. That aimed to be films that you would see with some friends and after getting out of the theater, sit around a coffee shop and discuss for hours afterwards. And that wasn't the goal of, for example, um, Flash Gordon or Forbidden Planet. I think if you look at The Outer Limits and if you look at Star Trek or The Twilight Zone, those creators aimed for, hinted to try to create an experience like that in sort of a backdoor way. But after 2001, the floodgates were sort of open for the science fiction movie to really be a movie that put philosophical ideas kind of front and center. You know, and that was in the air at the time, right? Stranger in a Strange Land was a very popular book in the 1960s. You know, Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. Right, and, and there was also a lot happening at the time with audiences, right, who were now ready intellectually, philosophically, emotionally to receive this kind of material. Absolutely. You know, one of the amazing things that happened in the late 1960s, which is a lot of the ideas that were in the bloodstream of the foreign cinema, right? That was the art house cinema at the time by filmmakers like Bergman or Tarkovsky, Bunuel or Fellini were jumping over into Hollywood mainstream cinema. And I think uh, you could see that playing out in all the genres, but certainly in science fiction. The popularity of art house cinema in the 1960s also informed the expectations of what someone might want to get out of seeing a movie. And so you had audiences that were starting to turn out to Hollywood movies by filmmakers that were also informed by these same art house uh, masterpieces. And the audience was there. People were expecting more than just a ride when they went out to the movies. They were expecting it to be something that would sort of open their mind up or create some type of intellectual ferment, or at the very least, give them some really, really interesting things to talk about at dinner afterwards. It wasn't just that filmmakers were trying to push the envelope. What people were expecting from a night out at the movies had changed. 
they were expecting and responding to something that would challenge them. So you also had them turning out for movies like The Trip, which came out a year before 2001. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The trip. You had um, all the psychedelic Corman films, and you even had audiences turning out for a film like Tulane Blacktop, which is ostensibly sort of a road movie, but ends in one of the trippiest endings of all time. And the film's a, a classic because of that. So you had all of these classic Hollywood genres, like the heist movie, like the road movie, like the science fiction movie that were suddenly being reimagined and sort of recontextualized in this psychedelic way. So we're now at the end of the 70s and Alien comes along and it's another milestone. What is it that it does different than anything that came before it? What's uncanny about Alien is it begins in sort of this homage to the science fiction films that preceded it, uh, particularly 2001. You have this gliding camera movement, this modernist sort of sleep area, all flat lit, very controlled color palette, a kind of classical theme playing in the background. And the opening of Alien looks like an outtake from 2001. What that really was, was one of the greatest pieces of cinematographic misdirection ever. You have Derek Van Lint and Ridley Scott playing on the audience's expectations of what a sort of heady, high-minded, modernist science fiction film was supposed to look like. But what that opening really is, is it's kind of a head fake. And that modernist architecture and aesthetic is piece by piece taken apart and replaced by something that's much more complex and much thornier. And so by the very end, you're being confronted with spinning aircraft landing lights, steam, slime, lens flare, shaky handheld camera, the complete antithesis of the visual language of 2001. And so, you know, Ridley Scott, of course, you know, is a student of cinema and a student of art. He very, very much knew, I think, what he was doing the way he was setting up alien that way. It's interesting that you mention Ridley Scott, like in, in terms of like his intentionality, because I, I get the opposite impression from him. Uh, we have the, uh, an account of the filming of alien on a, on the ASC website by Van Lint himself. And also with Ridley Scott, it seems to me that he was, he was trying to solve a puzzle. Well, th that's always the magic of, of filmmaking, the magic of cinematography. You know, you make all sorts of last minute decisions and you look back on them and they seem like they're inevitable, and how could you have ever made the movie any other way? And the other thing I'd say is that before a certain time, filmmakers were very circumspect about trying to seem kind of too intellectual about, about their intentions. And, you know, so many classic films in the 30s, 40s, 50s with really interesting transgressive uh, lighting styles, and the cinematographers would often talk about them like they were just technicians. But of course we weren't. And in, you know, in many of the private conversations, they were very aware of what they were doing. So as things I think you have to take, you know, people's personal accounts of things with a grain of salt. You know, you look at what Derek Van Lint said about Alien, you know, which is a masterpiece. And I think his quote at the end of the ASC interview with him was uh, he said and it was, you know, very British, something along the lines of, I was quite pleased with the results. 
And I think it's understandable people don't want to tip their hands in terms of their, their artistic inclinations. And I think you look at a work of art, you know, whether it's a painting or, or literature, and there's meaning there that's even beyond what the preconceptions of the, of the author was. Right. And it's interesting to see that meaning emerge through like a judicious application of technique. A- absolutely. And then, uh, and I'll circle back we're kind of talking out of order here, but another really interesting thing about Alien is that it's such a great example of how filmmaking by committee can actually really work well. And, you know, that's always sort of one of the worst kind of slights against studio filmmaking is it's this sort of death of a thousand cuts and the vision of the film gets diluted and, you know, too many chefs in the kitchen. But if you look at the journey that Alien took, Ian, Right. You have, um, you know, something that was uh, originally, I believe, written by Dan Bannon, who had made uh, who had worked in a science fiction film called Dark Star, which is very fun to take a a look back on. That was directed by John Carpenter. That was uh, his USC thesis project, right? That's right. And to the folks listening, go check out the trailer for Dark Star. It's pretty amazing. It's definitely worth checking out. It sort of shows what happens if you try to make this heady type of science fiction film, but on a pretty limited budget. Got two words for you, beach ball. <laughs> right. And there's there's just a, a great monologue about surfing uh, there as well. I'm trying to remember, I think, is there an astronaut surfing in space in that? I, I may, Maybe at the end, but there's there's definitely that monologue in the middle of the film with, um, God, I can't remember which character it is. I think it might actually even be a Bannon, but he's got his head stuck through the the cupola of the of the ship, yeah, and he's just kind of tripping on space, and and someone is definitely attacked by a, a giant uh, beach ball there uh, <laughs> as well. The, uh, the I think the rules of gravity in that film were highly selective, but it, it's it's a really fun movie to take a look at, and I think it, again, it just is just another sort of data point about what was in the air and how quickly the, like science fiction was was changing, and you look at from Dark Star, O'Bannon writes a script that I believe is called Star Beast that then finds its way into the hands of Walter Hill. And Walter Hill makes some script changes. My understanding is, and I could be wrong, but I, I believe Walter Hill added the character of the android. And then it was also Walter Hill that suggested that uh, the protagonist be female. Right. There were, they were all, it was an all-male crew at first. And then he added the Lambert and Ripley characters. And uh, it was, uh, it was Dan O'Bannon. The script first went to Ronald Shusett, who contributed a draft. And then the deal was made with Fox. Gordon Carroll came on board. And then Carroll had a company called Brandywine in which Walter Hill and David Geiler were partners. And that's how Walter Hill came to the project. I'm actually taking this information from an excellent book by British film critic David Thompson. It's called The Alien Quartet. It came out a while ago. Obviously, there were only four alien films at the time. First published 1998. Um, but it's, it's really just a fantastic look at all four alien films from an, an, an intensely academic point of view. It's a great visual analysis. I haven't read that, and I, I'd love to check that one out. But back to what you were saying, though, is Walter Hill got the script. And then eventually it finds its way into the hands of Ridley Scott, who, of course, you know, puts his own stamp on it. And each step along the way, the project, instead of getting diluted and compromised, gets sort of distilled. And it, also, it just goes to show how sort of unpredictable art is. You know, a process that could totally butcher and ruin one movie, in this case, 
you know, couldn't have worked out better. Yeah, it was being honed. And it, it Thompson, he quotes Hill as saying, like, when he writes a script, and I'm paraphrasing the quote, but he, when he writes a script, um, you know, he doesn't care about where the characters necessarily came from, what they're going to do after the film is done. He just cares about what's happening now on screen. If you've read the Driver script, it has everything you need to understand the story and nothing to slow down the reading of it, nothing to slow down the understanding of it. And you can hear Walter Hill's voice, right, in this sort of banter of uh, the crew in the beginning, right? You know, they're kind of griping about not getting their bonus. That sort of like vernacular was an interesting thing to see in a science fiction film. You don't imagine the pilot in 2001, you know, right after having his very, very slow walk around the spaceship to get onto the intercom and complain to Hal that he's not getting his bonus that month. So you have this sort of process that should be messy, but it actually distills the film. And another thing that's interesting is that um, it's very difficult for us to hold this in our brains now, but Sigourney Weaver was not the obvious protagonist of the film when Alien was um, released. In fact, I don't think, insanely enough, I don't think she um, gets top billing in the film. And so that, again, is this sort of misdirection. The, the character that is not given the top billing of the film, that isn't the biggest star in the movie, ends up sort of emerging this, as the protagonist as everyone else gets sort of killed off. And so there's all right. these things that are sort of built into the DNA of Alien to kind of subvert our expectations of what it is we're going to be presented with when we go into the, the movie theater. What's the pivot point in your estimation, like when, when things start coming apart? Well, I think what's wonderful about the film is how slowly it happens. Um, you you know, you almost don't notice it. And from a cinematographic perspective, I almost imagine Ridley Scott and, and Van Lint, you know, like sitting down somewhere and just going through every way that they can sort of assault the audience in the theater. And so you have spinning lights, you have neon lights, you have steam, you have smoke, you have two different types of strobe lights, you have a shaky camera, even towards the end of the movie, the computer monitors, which had been very, very meticulously synced up with the shutter of the film camera at the beginning, the they're throwing the video monitors intentionally out of sync. You're lighting actors with flamethrowers. And so all of the sort of very, very organized cinematographic techniques that you saw being used in the 1960s are also being sort of replaced by these more visceral and kind of assaultive ways of lighting the actors. What was the film stock that came out around that time? Because the technology at the time allowed them more room, I guess, to to experiment with their palette. Alien was shot on 5247, which is a 100T film. So it's not like there was this magical, fast new film stock that came out that all of a sudden they can light with flamethrowers for. I think a lot of it was just filmmakers feeling the sort of agency and being empowered to try these crazy things out. I was shot anamorphic, or shot on 100-speed film. And I, and I do think a lot of the practical sources that they started having on set were partly because there was nowhere to hide the lights. And you had these anamorphic shots going down these long corridors. And really, the only way to light things were using uh, practical sources. As cinematographers, right, if you can't, if you can't hide a light, um, you find a uh, you find a practical type source that looks really cool that you can sort of incorporate as part of your visual design. And that's what Scott and Van Lint did. But what happens as the movie progresses, and it happens really just sort of drip, 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 a lot of the clean, soft, 
white light that the film begins with begins to be slowly replaced with these more assaultive types of practical lighting. Spinning sirens, strobes, flamethrowers, neon lights, fluorescent lights, and um, you know, and of course, the the, uh, the fill levels brought way down as as the film progresses as well. But it really happens very methodically, right? It's just layer after layer of this kind of you know glossy fantasy land patina is kind of pulled off of the film, and sort of what's left underneath is this very very gritty uh, skeleton with steam and lens flare and goo everywhere. There's a moment, though, where it goes from a ballet into, I don't know, like a meat grinder. And that's, of course, the scene at the dinner table with Kane. Uh, Right, absolutely. You know, that's a really good point. I mean, that, that moment is when the movie turns around. That's also where the movie sort of begins to manifest being in a a different genre, a different idiom than you think. Um, And I think Ridley Scott even might have said, you know, his goal is to make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space. And the goal of the film from that point on is really to sort of terrorize you. Okay, we've been kind of talking around this point now, and I think we've set the scene for the next part of our conversation was just like an appreciation of Van Lint's work. And I've, well, I've seen the film dozens of times probably, but in preparation for our conversation uh, today, I really sat down and took a good look at it and really watched it and asked myself, well, what do I like about this film visually? And so, I mean, you go first. Let's just tell me like, what is it about Van Lint's work in this particular film that just like really grabs you? Give me an example. Uh, absolutely. There's, there's a sequence in Alien. It's maybe two thirds of the way into the film and you're following the Ripley character backpedaling with her as she holds a flamethrower. There's sirens spinning in the background and the camera is gliding on a dolly um, until she hears something frightening and hides for a second. And then a moment later, she has to get up and book it back the other way. And the camera follows her back handheld. In the midst of all that, you have spinning lights. You're inside a corridor where there's no obvious place to hide movie lights you have the blue ambience of the spaceship that's being contrasted by the red of the flamethrower that's on like the opposite side of the color wheel. And when Sigourney Weaver takes a moment and tries to assess whether she goes forward or whether she uh, runs, right? It's this sort of fight or flight moment. The camera finds her. And in the midst of all this, there's some of the most exquisite portraiture you can imagine. And it conveys everything about who she is as a character both her determination and her fear of what being thrust into this moment kind of means for her. At the same time, you're doing all of these really transgressive visual techniques. You have spinning aircraft lights that are in the shot. You're lighting a human with an actual flame. You have strobes that are synced with the shutter of the film camera. You have lens flares, which are still a pretty novel technique even at this time. And you're doing it all in 100 speed film And edit to edit, there's perfect visual consistency. It's kind of this three-legged stool where you have incredibly thoughtful portraiture of the humans, and then you also have these avant-garde techniques that are being flawlessly pulled off. At the same time, you have incredible technical control. And this is all by someone who is filming their first anamorphic movie and their first real movie at all. Uh, Derek Van Lint was a commercial cinematographer before this, and I think maybe he had made some very, very independent films before this, but this was his first studio movie. 
what a debut. And so for all these new techniques to be used and for have them all land so perfectly and to have the soul of the, the characters and also everything the film's trying to do um, in terms of its, you know, visual language, for it all to come off so elegantly is just extraordinary. I, I can't think of very many first features that can hold a candle to it. Yeah, you know, I picked the exact same sequence. <laughs> I picked four, you know, moments that really jumped out at me. And this was sort of the one that really wowed me. Uh, it starts right after Parker and Lambert are killed and Ripley is like, she's, she's going to blow the ship up. She's doing it on her own, right? So she, yeah. she sets the self-destruct and then she makes her way back to the shuttlecraft. And then the thing, the, the image that really sticks out in my mind is right before she turns the corner to get into the shuttle, you have this like strobing effect, but it's just like a big spotlight with a fan in front of it or a fan blade that's just spinning. They really get into that shot after she sees the alien yeah. blocking her way. And it's just like this moment of abject terror. It's almost like she's paralyzed not just by the alien, but by the light, and then runs back, tries to switch off the self-destruct. And then that's when all the steam comes in and the flame light. And it's just, uh, I wrote down, firing on all cylinders, the light, the sound, the acting, the camera movements, everything. Like you said, for, for a first time, cinematographer, just really phenomenal. And a sophomore director too. And again, you, you know, you just imagine this sort of dinner table conversation where every way that they can kind of create this sort of intense experience for the audience. You know, they're, they're, they're going for it. And what's incredible is how, how all of it works. And it's very yeah. rare when you see movies that have this amount of experimentation where it all uh, works so kind of seamlessly. I think a really great anecdote that just kind of shows you both sort of what their goals were and the kind of level of experimentation was, which is that in addition to using uh, CSI strobe lights or strobe lights that you'd see in like a discotheque, they were also using something called a scissor arc, right? It's, it's two sides, uh, you know, it's two kind of metal bars. And you kind of slap them together and it creates a lightning bolt. It creates an arc effect, you know? And I'll just say as a side note, I think that's one of the really awesome things about cinematography is, you know, in cinematography, the technology is additive. You come up with a cool new way to make a strobe light and you use that, but you can still go into the kind of, storage of the studio and get out this uh, machine that was used in like the 1920s. And that's what's really fun about cinematography is, you, you know, someone comes out with a gimbal, but that doesn't mean you have to get rid of your dolly um, or your uh, Steadicam as well. Uh, you know, you get to always add technology, but you get to keep the cool old stuff as well. But, you know, I, they were using these uh, scissor arcs that create some of the flashes. And I guess they made this, this, this hor horrendous kind of clanging sound. And... Ridley Scott just decided to keep that sound in the movie. So if you hear this sort of crashing sound that goes along the lightning bolts, that's literally the sound of the electricians kind of clapping the scissor arcs together. And I'm sure, you know, making things creatively unpleasant for, you know, for the actors in front of the camera. And I think that just sort of speaks to the kind of aesthetic and I think to the level of experimentation they had here. Yeah. Now you mentioned handheld, which was not frequent, but always seemed to occur in the right place. And they talked about how if the operator, you know, lost their balance and they really lost the frame, how they'd use those moments. And handheld anamorphic in a science fiction film is not something that you saw very much of right. before that. You know, you take a look at those beautiful Le Corbusier worlds that were created by Kubrick in 2001. I mean, a camera operator running backwards as fast as possible is not something that you would ever possibly imagine seeing in that film. Right. Or even just in the way that it enhances the mood. And I'm thinking about the scene where Ian Holmes 
character, Ash, the android, turns on on Ripley after she discovers what, what the company has been up to. And they're in the mess area and he just throws her onto the floor and, and the camera switches from a low angle looking up at Ash. And then the operator, probably Scott, I'm guessing, pops up from maybe a medium shot into a close-up and then back around his head. And then it goes straight back into a dark corner of the mess. Ash takes Ripley and drags her into this new area. And then boom, we're in a different scene. Right. It, it becomes like this fight scene all of a sudden. And it's, it's you know, very tense, um, but it's all one take. And, and it's also just incredible visual design, right? It's it's this, yeah. it's more of this kind of genre mashup, right? That's mm-hmm. the type of scene that you would see in, again, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which was not shot anamorphic. <laughs> no, right. The, the, the camera in Alien, I'm guessing, was quite a bit heavier. But that's the type of fight scene that you didn't typically see inside a spaceship, let alone inside this beautifully designed room with these hundreds and hundreds of little lights that were twinkling. You know, you listen to the sound design and it's almost this sort of breathing sound effect. Everything about that room is there to create this sense of sort of order and calm. Then just the messiest fight in the world uh, breaks out in the middle of it. That's sort of a microcosm of, I think, what they're trying to do throughout the film, right? They're trying to kind of pull the rug out from under you. You know, what could be sort of more organized or calm than that computer room, um, you know, as you carefully wait for the responses to kind of light up on the screen. And by the time it ends, I mean, you have just the biggest mess ever. Right. Well, yeah, you're in the eating area. And instead of it being, you know, uh, softly lit uh, as it was uh, uh, in those early scenes with the coal crews together and having dinner, there's shadows everywhere. That center table, it's covered in weapons. Yeah. And most of the lights in the room are off. And now we're in a horror movie. Yeah. And there's something very special. I mean, I think, you know, most cinematographers always appreciate seeing this. There's something very special about movies that come back to the same location more than once and then kind of recontextualize it. And what's great about setting a movie inside a spaceship is like there's not that many new places to go. And so, you know, for a thoughtful DP, it's a fun thing to play with. And Alien is such a textbook of that. You know, you keep coming back to the same places over and over, but each time you're there, they've been recontextualized and the visuals reflect that as the movie jumps from kind of a modernist aesthetic to a postmodernist aesthetic. Yeah. Um, I have more that I could prompt you with. You know, um, one of the things that really stuck out to me this time, the use of insert shots. They punch in, they give you the information that you need, and they're easy to understand, even when Ripley is setting the self-destruct sequence uh, on the ship. I have no idea what she's doing. But through editing and the use of close-ups and inserts, I understand, right? I, I, I can read the scene, and that's throughout the movie. Like when Thomas Garrett's Dallas or Ripley are uh, in the computer room talking to mother, I have no idea how what they're typing is translating to the screen. But I have all the information I need to understand like how they communicate um, and it's all given to you visually. Well, let me circle back on something you said and I think it's maybe something important to kind of think on, which is that, you know, when I'm filming something, one of the words that I try to usually avoid having people use is like the words B-roll or the words, you know, uh, quick insert. Because when you do that, what it, what it does is it sort of puts those shots into like a different bucket than the shots that are considered the more important or might have more to do with telling the story. And, you know, just almost as a thought exercise, say, uh, you know, if you imagine, okay, I'm going to go outside and get some B-roll. Or if you say to yourself, I'm going to go outside and shoot a beautiful exterior. One sort of is more evocative than the other. 
And I think the inserts in Alien, I think, have the same sort of like dictum behind it. None of those shots feel like quick inserts. And when I say quick, I don't mean I'm not talking about how much time it might have taken for them to actually film it, but just in terms of like the amount of thought that went into designing them. You know, I don't want to spin out on a whole nother subject, but like the two are unrelated, right? And an audience member has no clue how much time was spent on any particular shot. It's sort of not relevant to them. Like some of the best shots takes them 10 seconds and, you know, some of the worst shots took days. It sort of doesn't make a difference. But what does make a difference is intent. And the intent of every insert in Alien, right? And the intent of every establishing shot, right? Is like very, very clear. You never get the idea when you look at Alien that, you know, someone was sort of left behind to pick up the inserts while the rest of the crew moved on to do something more important. You have a sense that every shot, and you know, whether it's the shot of someone's finger like about to push a button or a shot of a cat inside a, a cat carrier, they all have the same sort of gravity as the biggest, most epic shots. And I think that's what gives the film part of its power is that you feel this sort of intent behind every frame. And I think part of the sort of pleasure of seeing a movie and what's sort of wonderful and kind of mesmerizing about it is like you're being guided by a sort of intelligence that's not your own. And by sort of surrendering yourself to this sort of storytelling, right, and allowing them to kind of take you somewhere, you get to disappear in the narrative. And when you encounter even something as quick as a... um, an insert shot, right, or an establishing shot that you can sort of feel when the, that intelligence isn't there, when that intent isn't there, it kind of jumps you out of the movie. And mm-hmm. if you look at Alien, what's really wonderful about it is that you never feel like any of the shots are sort of thrown away, right? You feel like every shot has been crafted. And I don't think they had a ton of time to make the movie. I'm not talking about how much time it took for them to actually shoot it, but just in terms of the sort of intent and the kind of care that went into everything, you never felt that some shots were sort of of higher importance than others. Every shot feels incredibly important in that movie. Right, you know, maybe uh, I should amend my previous statement when I said that I don't think that it was entirely, like the film we got was entirely what Van Lint or Scott intended. I, I, I meant that more in, in, a, in a subtextual way. You know, obviously they knew what they were doing and they had set out to make this film with a clear plan. And it produced like such a, such a classic of cinema. It begs the question is though, like what was it about the experience of just shooting features in general that turned Van Lint away from, from that career path? Well, let me circle back to something you mentioned, which is, you know, what what their intent was and how sort of carefully crafted the film is. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Alien that I think makes it so resonant is that, you know, it's this great example about how the visual design and the formal elements of something, how something looks, how something sounds, right? The look and feel something can elevate the text so much so that it becomes art. And the script for Alien is... um to my eye, you know, really excellent and transgressive, but the look and feel and the formal elements, like the crafting of it, are such that it elevates the film into something more than uh, the sum of its parts. And I think for cinematographers, that's a very meaningful and very powerful thing. Sometimes as a cinematographer, you're told, well, you know, the script sort of is what it is, and you're there to uh, sort of help put as nice of a patina on it as possible. But if you look at a film like Alien, and there's many other, you know, examples, the cinematography of Alien and the and the crafting of it, you know, transforms the film into, into a whole nother thing. If that film was crafted in a less thoughtful way, 
you know, it would have been a completely, completely different film, even if one word had never been changed. The formal elements of it, right, how something looks and sounds are absolutely an essential part of the text of it all. Right. This is what you get when cinematography serves the story. Absolutely. And, you know, and and, and cinematography is the building block of the story. Yeah, I know. And I think we've been going for a while here. We've got yeah, a, lot a lot of good, good material. We should, so talk, yeah, we should talk about Van to wrap up this, this conversation. I don't know how how much there is to discuss about Van Lin's career post-Alien, his feature career anyway, because it didn't last very long. He really has one major credit to his name after this, and that's um, 1981's Dragon Slayer. And it's really one of the great mysteries of cinematography. It's one of the great filmmaking mysteries. Why did Derek Van Lint go on to make more films? Putting Alien aside, if you look at Dragon Slayer, that is an extraordinary work of cinematography. And if you jump ahead and if you look at Game of Thrones or high fantasy films or TV series that followed it, Dragon Slayer was doing a lot of the same techniques 30 years earlier. If you're a cinematographer, uh, definitely don't sleep on that one. It has the same level of control and innovation you saw in Alien, but it's just in a different uh, genre. And why Derek Van Lint didn't make more than those two movies, I think we'll all wonder. You know, he made those two films and he moved on to shoot and and direct sometimes very, very high-end commercials, which is what his world was like before then. I even went and um, found his list of credits from his uh, his agency. And, you know, it mentions the two features and then it's it's a list of some of the best commercials and the best commercial directors of his time. You know, British Airways and Cadbury and Coca-Cola and Ford, General Motors, Guinness, Honda, Jeep, right? It, you couldn't ask for a more impressive commercial CV, but who amongst us wouldn't have been interested in seeing what would have happened if him and Ridley Scott continued their collaboration together, what those next films would have looked like, and what it would have looked like if Derek Van Lint had gone on to make a movie with Steven Spielberg or to film a movie for Sofia Coppola, and we'll never know. So I don't know why he made the choices he did. You know, if you read that American Cinematographer article, there's some sort of hints there. He talks about how on a commercials, he could really put the lights right to the edge of the frame and how he had to allow room for the actors to improvise and how sometimes that was frustrating to him. And he talks about the stress of having to deal with the politics of a film studio. But the truth is, we'll, we'll never really know. I think to some sense, it almost doesn't matter. Who am I to say whether or not it's it's a loss? But I would have been very, very curious to have seen uh, what other films he would have made. I mean, if you look at those two films, they're two of the most extraordinary examples of cinematography and really turning the genres in which they inhabit upside down. You know, we'll just have to remember Derek Van Lint from the two movies he made. Uh, what an incredible accomplishment. But in kind of a roundabout way, we, we do see the effects of Van Lint's work in Alien and Dragon Slayer on other films. And I'm thinking specifically of the work of the late Adrian Biddle, BSC, which is not to downplay his unique creativity, but he was Van Lint's camera assistant on Alien and went on to shoot the sequel, Aliens, after Van Lint turned Cameron down, as well as two really beautifully photographed fantasy films in the vein of Dragon Slayer, The Princess Bride, uh, another postmodern work, and Willow. And then he worked again with Ridley Scott 10 years after Alien, uh, shooting Thelma and Louise. And if you look at Event Horizon, which Adrian Biddle photographed, you know, that also has a lot of the DNA from Alien in it. And th this goes back into what we're talking about at the beginning, right? The way 
cinematography is always in conversation with the films that precede it in the genre. And so, you know, you have Alien, which sort of begat the look of Aliens, right? Which went to Event Horizon. And then even if you look at like video games, like Doom, right? The video game Doom, right? That that borrows a lot from the, the visual uh, language of Alien. And that's not even getting into all the Alien sequels that followed it as well. And so it's interesting to see how the kind of the visual DNA for Alien kind of spread out, right? And kind of tentacled outwards into all of these other films afterwards and, and beyond films, right? Into the, into the world of video games and into the world of art. And now when you make a film that's in space, that's on a spaceship, the visual language of Alien is going to be something that you have to contend with. was Michael Pessa, ASC, and me just barely scratching the surface of what could be said about Derek Van Lint, CSC's cinematography for Alien. A complete transcript of this episode is available at theasc.com, as well as links to the Derek Van Lint and Ridley Scott Alien stories from AC's August 1979 issue. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the American Cinematographer podcast. Let us know what you think in the comments section on the website or on iTunes. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you want to give us a five-star review while you're at it, that would be great as well. For our latest content and exclusive behind-the-scenes photos and videos, follow American Cinematographer on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Vimeo. And you can visit theasc.com for more on the art and craft of cinematography, including articles on the latest productions, video discussions with leading cinematographers, our complete library of podcast interviews and archival stories, notes on new products and services, and the ASC store. This episode was mixed at Brickshop Audio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for listening, and that's a wrap. <laughs>